0: Well, good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for coming. Um, there were quite a few people said that they were quite happy to listen to it at home. And uh, avoid coming out. So thank you for being here. Um, although I'm, I'm sorry to believe that it is our last one. Uh, to be fair, not really sad, uh, but there's that kind of sense to it. Um, this was chosen in advance, being clean. Uh, it's not just for tonight. In you know, the climate we find ourselves, uh, it was, you know, uh, as I said, uh, planned in advance uh, a number of weeks ago. Now, um, I have a rather ambitious schedule tonight. Uh, I'm going to cram in the Hebrew words. It's our last session of the five. Um, I'm going to do at least six words. Um, You'll know that I've tried to do too much. you see me flicking through the slides frantically and saying, don't don't worry about that one. Uh, But I'm going to try and get through uh, six words. And a significant part of that will be looking at Psalm 51. I think that uh, by looking at some of these words to do with being clean, uh, we get to look at the key, being clean, Psalm 51, and we'll see it very differently. Because I actually believe that the lessons being clean that we see in the Old Testament apply to us now, here in Aberdeen. And then I'll try and follow that up with one of the words for sacrifice, we can have a rather paltry introduction to the sacrificial system, and then finish with the question of, does God repent? Which really could have been the entire uh, subject for tonight, that would have been probably enough. Uh, but uh, hopefully that's what we'll get through this evening. Um, so I'm start off with Psalm 51 to introduce the importance of being clean. Now, I should say, uh, uh, being clean is an important part of our relationship with God now. Now, we normally Christianize it. We use words like uh, sanctification, uh, which is not a word in the Bible. That's, that's a, a Latin word much, much later. But these sort of Christian words are trying to point to this same idea that we have in the Old Testament. Um, but by changing it, into something else sometimes we leave behind a lot of what was intended by being clean now what I think is really interesting is that Psalm 51 uses three different words for being clean and they all mean something slightly different and uh, I think that each of them bear looking at to grasp from the, the breadth of what's going on there the type of cleanliness that's there I just want to point out from the outset that all of these forms of cleanliness were not down to human effort uh, each of them uh, reside in the grace of God and uh, each of them are important to understanding what's going on in the psalm So, we're going to turn to Psalm 51, if you have your Bibles with you, and then please open up there. Uh, We're going to do verses 1 and 2 in particular, we'll focus uh, quite, quite heavily there. And in actual fact, if one of you wouldn't mind reading out Psalm 51, verses 1 to 2, that would be appreciated. First two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Thank you. Now, um, most of our our translations uh, will keep in a superscription uh, telling us where this psalm originated from. Now, Most of these titles uh, that are there were added much, much, much later. They're not part of the original text. This one is... (laughs) And uh, we have here quite clearly uh, the idea that this psalm is penned by David, um, having been uh, uh, caught uh, out by Nathan. The prophet Nathan came to the, to the king and he chinned him on his sin that he'd been sitting on for about a year, uh, and was the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of the innocent husband. And so we've had a year of uh, denial of the wrongdoing and the subsequent ramifications, uh, not just on his family life, but uh, uh, really the whole nation. Uh, suffer as a result and so we have the subsequent outpouring of repentance in this beautifully written poem Uh, so verse 1 we have uh, the first uh, of our words Um, now before I can go any Further, I have to just, just, just point out a couple of uh, bonus words. Okay, A few words which I just think are, 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 are good to know in the context of what we're about to read. They help us make sense of it. Uh, so the first one I want to look at is chesed. Um, uh, I mentioned in brief before, this is the word that is for the love of God sometimes translated uh, steadfast love or covenant love, that sort of thing. Uh, And the main reason is, is that although the Hebrews had lots of different words for love, they recognized that whatever we can imagine, whatever we can feel, whatever we can show or experience, cannot compare to the love of God. And the moment we use the word love, we think we know what it means when we talk about God's love very often we imagine well that's what I think of, as, of, of love but just on a bigger scale and the Hebrews were very keen to say no 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 no, no. <laughs> this is completely separate completely above anything you can imagine to the extent we need a separate word for the love of God because it's beyond anything you can imagine I, I love that uh, I must confess um, and, and just as I said you know, previous week the fact that we use the same word love for so many different things it really does kind of diminish what is meant and so this is the chesed of God uh, the reason that there was a creation the reason there was a cross uh, the reason that we can be here the, you know, the reason that he reaches out to save us and is willing to die for us chesed uh, and uh, so this unbreakable covenant founding love uh, that will not let us go um, but that we are the recipients of nonetheless we can't understand it but we receive it there's one word Another one I just want to bring in is, is the word Hanan uh, and it's mercy which is resultant from pity that is different which is mercy animating from compassion. Both are usually translated as mercy in our texts. Um, That's the end result, kind of regardless, I guess, and that's why we do so. Uh, But there's a lot more to them, and the fullness of them we see in Psalm 51. You see Psalm 51 here, Hananmi, God of Gods, uh, according uh, to the hesed of you, um, according uh, to the abundance of the racham of you, um, machah, which is going to be the word we get to eventually, uh, uh, wipe away uh, the rebellion of me. That's, that's what it says uh, there in the Hebrew. And as you can see, these are the words I've just mentioned, chanan, <laughs> hesed, and racham. And they are important then to, for me to understand what comes next. It says here, show me Hanan. So, show me mercy emanating from pity. Now, Hanan is uh, the response from someone superior to somebody inferior. Entirely suitable here. David seeks you know, this response from God. This is the same term that David uses when he seeks pity when his child is dying in 2 Samuel 12, verse 22. Uh, it's the same thing that he asks for when his enemies threaten to overwhelm him in Psalm 56 and Psalm 57, the opening verse of both of those. Job pleads for this from his friends, uh, Job 19:21, uh, 21, when he's, he's looking at them to, to show this pity as is in this debased state. It is entirely appropriate for this sinner king and it's a cry that is strengthened when we see the basis of this request uh, he is asking uh, uh, for this uh, this Hanan not out of innocence uh, not out of any worthiness but based entirely on the love of God um, that is uh, uh, the, the, the entire strength of his argument just purely out of that unbreakable love that you have for me show me this pity Uh, it's a cry not unique to David we see it in other psalms uh, psalm 85 verse 7 psalm 90 verse 14 we see this similar idea coming through people coming to God with no right to get anything from him but they plead for it on the basis of his love that's uh, that's the opening Uh, and then he follows it up with um, uh, racham which is slightly uh, different um Raham we talk about it being mercy based on compassion, slightly different from, from pity. Now the reason we say it's mercy from compassion is because so Raham, in a very literal sense, is talking about the womb. So bear with me. It is in effect uh, saying, Show me the compassion that a mother would show her own child. Uh, Don't show me justice. (laughs) I've got no interest in an impartial judge. I want an entirely biased, love-driven mother who looks at her offspring and in her heart feels compassion. Uh, That's what's uh, in there. Uh, We often describe it as uh, the mercy of the womb. That's how it's uh, very often translated, uh, this term. So he comes as a child and he seeks compassion leading to mercy. That's his opening cry. Ah, You know, uh, pity me, according to your uh, unbreakable love and according to the abundance of the compassion of the womb. Incredible start. Uh, And uh, all of this is to lead to what we have here. So, all of that mercy, all of that pity, all of that compassion and love of God is to lead to an action, to something that He wants God to do. And that brings us to our key word for tonight, Macha. It occurs six times in the Old Testament. It's used to, to describe a whole array of cleanliness. Uh, literally, though, it means to wipe away. No. So when you clean dishes or erase what's on a whiteboard, and when it is wiped, it is gone. It is no longer attached to the item that it once adorned. So the idea of wiping away sin is like wiping the debris from a dish. Um, and we see that. That parallel is used in the second Kings. Uh, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And so that's this idea, that sort of wiping, uh, as it were. Similarly, it can be used to describe being wiped out, um, it, as in to be destroyed. So, when God intends to wipe mankind from the face of the earth in the flood, you see that in Genesis 6 7 and elsewhere. When used in relation to sin, the wiping out means that it no longer exists, it can no longer be held against the person. Specifically, it's usually used in relation to books, uh, when records are being blotted out. Um, for example, Exodus 32:33, But Yahweh said to Moses, "Whoever has sinned against me, I will, machan, I will blot out their name from my book." <laughs> if you so the king asks for his rebellion is erased there's not that any specific deed it's not just what he has done with Bathsheba not just what happens with her husband but his entire rebellion against God he's aware that there's a cumulative debt that arises because of his persistent transgressions against God when he's asking for macha, he's not just saying see this that I've just done can you forgive me for that he's saying actually all that I have done Can you erase the records? Uh, There's this idea then that uh, there's these ledgers of God, these giant tombs, and these rebellious actions have been written in line after line after line in these giant books of God, and he's saying, blot them out. (laughs) All those records against me, blot them out, so they can no longer be read out against me. Uh, uh, because it's me, I I always think of of, uh, Marley's ghost at this point I'll be entirely honest uh, from uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol if you remember through his lifetime all of his misdeeds and each of his misdeeds had created a link in a chain that he wears and every single one of them uh, eventually uh, is the burden that he carries well David is looking at God very aware as it were of the chains that would be wrapped around him because of the consistent sin. The consistent rebellion, and he says, wipe them away. Just make them gone. And that's his his big plea uh, in the opening verse. Uh, Just make this rebellion obliterated, wiped away. Verse 2 takes us on to the next two words of cleansing because there's more to go. Uh, He's talked about getting rid of the records, but David recognises that there's more to being clean than just what is written down about him. So our next two words occur in verse 2, both needing more cleansing. So the first can be found in the three Hebrew words that provide the opening plea uh, of the king. Um, Cause me uh, to be kobas, uh, so we say washed, uh, from my great iniquity. Uh, I do recognize a number of translations will have different words for wash, but it is some sort of cleansing idea comes in there. Well, um, well, it's used quite frequently, it's used 51 times. It's actually most commonly used for the cleaning of clothes, uh, particularly prior to or during religious uh, occasions. You know, washing your clothes was always a significant part. Um, here we go from Exodus. Uh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them, that is, make them holy today and tomorrow, and let them uh, wash their clothes. Or uh, verse 14 So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, that is, make them holy, and they washed their clothes. Um, Because of the importance of being clean in a religious setting, the majority of uses of this term do occur in the Book of Leviticus 31 times and Numbers 8 times in that religious kind of setting. It's linked to the use of soap and it's also linked to those who were professional clothes washers, the the washerwomen, as it were. Uh, and and uh, this, is, this is actually quite interesting um, because uh, the way that they would wash the clothes uh, is very much rooted in what the word means. So the word doesn't just simply mean to make clean, it means to have a deep clean. It's somewhat poignant uh, just now, but this idea of a really deep, deep clean. Uh, the washerwoman would knead those clothes and very often they would batter those clothes against a rock in order to get those deep stains out. And David is turning to God with that word, recognizing that it's not just the records that need changing, but himself that needs changing. And he says, this deep stain of sin that is in me, get it out. Wash it out. Beat it out of me, he's saying. Um, and it's quite, quite a powerful uh, term, uh, Particularly in Psalm 51, verse 2, with a Hebrew form called the uh, hiphil Imperative. The only thing you need to worry about with regard to that is this is the most intense form that the Hebrew can convey. So it's already a fairly intense term, you know, get deep clean, beat it out of me kind of thing. But this form means uh, let me be utterly Utterly clean, you know, it's, it's like the most extreme version of it, absolutely spotless. Get right in there and make me clean. Uh, and so that's uh, an additional element in, in the Hebrew. It's not just that the word itself is so strong, but the form that it comes in is the strongest available. He doesn't want any hint of a stain left in him. So, I suppose quite often we'll translate as uh, cause me to be greatly cleaned or wash me thoroughly to try and convey uh, some of the strength in that term. Because what we have here is a king who comes to God, he's got this poetic request. He says, Blot out the records, but also he adds this cry for the cleansing of that stain on the soul of the king. It's an indelible mark, and it's only God. Who can remove it? And that's what we have in our second term there. But it's not finished. Now, you'd think that would be enough. You'd think, well, surely that's all the cleaning that could possibly be done. But there was a third term to try and convey the idea that being clean covers a wide array of things. Yes, it involves the records being expunged. Yes, it involves this change within the person themselves. But we go one further: to here: to be clean or pure. Um, cause me to be greatly cleansed, uh, wash my great iniquity. It's what we've just done, and then the second part is and uh, and from my um, habitual sinfulness uh, make me pure or taher or some just have clean. Uh, David's habitual sinfulness, his chataf uh, uh, requires a further form of cleansing. See, he needs taher to be considered pure. And it's more than just deeds that have been done. It's more than just, you know, what's in the ledger. It's more than just the effect that's on his soul, as it were. You see, this is a man who habitually sins. And it's more than just being prone to failure. Uh, Here, um, his habitual sinfulness, I'm trying to convey the idea that the Hebrew is saying that here is a human being, and so therefore he is characterized, he is defined by being sinful. He has a constant compulsion, and he wants that dealt with. Uh, David then asks for hear, which usually means to be pure. Now, there are lots of words in Hebrew to be pure. Uh, Nakah, Psalm 1912, uh, which means uh, empty me out so I can be purified. We have zakah in Proverbs 20, verse 9, which means allow me to be so transparent that you can see there is no blemish within me. Uh, Here we have tahir, and it's really important. It's a ceremonial word. It it is a word that is used very much in the, the religious life of the people of the time, and it is a key word if you ever want to enter the presence of God. You were not allowed to enter into the presence of God when you were unclean. You had to be clean, you had to be tahir in order to go into his presence. Now, As as you will appreciate... It has a rather strong religious use, uh, used 94 times. Uh, so, it's, unsurprisingly, it occurs most often in Leviticus, uh, 43 times with a lot of the, the Celtic material, and 10 times in the book of Numbers. And because of that, we can see that it is used to describe those who have been cleansed of disease. Because uh, when they had, for example, a skin disease, they had to be out with the camp. They wanted them to come in and mingle. And they had to be out with. They were unclean. And so, something had to happen uh, an actual uh, physical demonstration of being before they were allowed back in and I think this is really quite important to understand when it comes to being clean and being holy because they're two very different things um, in order to be holy you had to be one of the people of God Now you could be out with the camp and still one of the people of God but you had to be clean in order to come before God And so, uh, as we see in Ezra, uh, the priests and Levites had to herd themselves together, all of them were to herd. They were clean, they were pure. And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. In order to take on that role before God, they had to be clean. Um, As you'll appreciate, sometimes it's a term uh, that is used to describe God, the utter purity of God, his His blamelessness. Um, Job 4.17, can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be Taher before his maker? You know, is it possible? Um, Eliphaz is asking Job. And so Taher is, is really about the status before this pure and holy God, a status that allows the people of God access to the presence of God When it came to accessing the presence of God, they had all these rites, these rituals, uh, which would move them from being unclean to being clean. And we often fail to grasp this. I I think as Christians we often fail to grasp that there is a difference between being holy and being clean. I I think very often we fail to grasp that there was a huge emphasis in the Old Testament on being clean in order that we would feel, enter into, uh, experience and know the very presence of God in our lives. Uh, And I think sometimes we we forget that it actually still applies. Um, Sorry here we go Uh, Deuteronomy 23 verse 14 because Yahweh your God walks in the midst of your camp therefore your camp must be holy so he may not see anything unclean among you there's this idea that if you wanted God to go with you uh, into battle uh, I for example you had to be clean and what David does I think it's really interesting David does not ask to become holy he is already one of the people of God he asks to be clean because he's afraid of the removal of the Holy Spirit he is afraid of the loss of the presence of God in his life. That's what he's fearful of, uh, and it's really interesting to see that uh, distinction uh, between the two. Um, so, <coughs> we normally describe this kind of separation, as it were. I remember when I was younger. Um, I I enjoyed playing rugby. The delusions of being, you know, really good at it. And uh, when I was in Stornoway, when I was playing, I really enjoyed it because, you know, I could get covered in mud. And it was part of the game I was supposed to. This was great. And uh, the problem was at the end of the game, you had the the shower block, and you had two teams trying to get into the shower block. And by the time you got there, and this was the very first person in, the water was freezing cold. It wasn't a lot of fun, I'll be entirely honest. You'd just be playing in the cold. You're already wet and cold. You come in together wetter and colder. It wasn't really much fun. However, my house was just down the road. Uh, My parents had a perfectly working shower in that house, and so me, a teenager at the time, bear in mind, thought in my wisdom, why would I go into this cold and freezing block when I could go to my father's house and have a warm shower? I was thinking prodigal son type things. I uh, wasn't quite right. Uh, but anyway, I got to the house. I remember walking up to the house. I mean, I was covered in mud. That's only rugby can really do, you know. I mean, really deep stains of mud everywhere, you know. Um, and so I go up to the house and my dad meets me at the front of the door. And he goes, <laughs> round the back. You know, I come through the front door like that. And I thought, well, fair enough. I'm covered in mud, you know. So I went round the back and my dad's waiting for me there. With a hose. <laughs> oh, you know, hose time, And my dad made me clean. You know, he actually got all that mud off me. It was quite a, an experience, I'll tell you. And the point of it was, as I came up to that front door, I was no less his son. Uh, There was no less an amount of love that he had for me, but there was no way in that state that I was going to come into the house. I wasn't going to walk in and sit in the city and hold on to my baby sister. There was no chance of me entering in because I was unclean. And that's the separation. It's not about saved or unsaved, it's not about salvation, it's about entering into the presence of God because we're clean. And there is a separation there. There is a difference there. And David is painfully aware of it. He is painfully aware that although he is a child of God, he can lose the presence of God in his life because he is unclean. Now, uh, in, in the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, being unclean uh, could happen in a number of different ways. And unclean was not bad. Unclean was simply the natural consequence of living in a fallen world. To be unclean means to be uh, tinged with death, to have the aura of death about you. And you cannot go into the presence of the author of life when you have something of death about you. So you weren't allowed to eat animals that ate other animals, uh, particularly uh, scavengers and bottom feeders in the sea. Uh, You couldn't uh, touch a corpse. Now the point of it is not that a Christian can't be an undertaker. That's, That's not the point. The point was to try and underline the seriousness of sin. The corpse was the ultimate example of the consequences of sin, the payment of sin made through. And so every single one of these was a reminder that we are constantly in touch with death. Uh, Sickness and illness and everything else is because of the fall, because of sin, because ultimately we're heading towards death. So you cannot bring that with you into the presence of the author of life because death can't survive in the presence of the author of life. And if you come in as a carrier of death, as it were, you won't survive. You know? like walking into the sun. <laughs> and so there were all these rituals to make sure that you were Tahir. That you had been cleaned of all of these hints of death on you. So you could enter into the presence of of The author of life. That's what the whole clean, unclean thing is about in the religious life of the people. So, Joshua uh, 3 5, I think, is, is, is actually really perfect in trying to, try to art- articulate this, this idea. And, and I want you to read this and, and actually be mindful of how it applies to us, because I believe it does. Joshua um, 3 5 teaches a difference is if you being the people of God and being sanctified so that the Lord God will do an amazing thing among you. This is what the verse says. And Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. And, and that's the gap that the Joshua is talking about. That's the gap. Um, they are the people of God regardless. But when they are sanctified, when they are clean, when they are teher, as it is in Hebrew, <clears throat> then God will do wonders among them. Now, an illustration. Uh, um, I think one of the very first summons I, I did here mentioned this, so, so if, you, if you've heard it, my apologies. <coughs> They're just are very strong apologies, I'm clearly going to continue. Um. piece. Now, I think this, again, rather articulates what I'm trying to say. Um, my, uh, when I we when, when were first born, uh, Isaac, who's uh, now nine, he's great now, He sleeps through the night. Uh, when he doesn't, he reads a book in his own bed and doesn't disturb me. Love that boy. <laughs> However, when he was a baby, and particularly when he was only a few weeks old, um, naturally this child would not sleep at all. And there's an entire industry dedicated to preying upon sleep-deprived parents, because you don't make good decisions when you're not sleeping. And so there's an entire industry out there saying, if you buy our product, your child will sleep. And after a week five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you become desperate. And so you're willing to purchase these myths in order to make the child cry now the one that we broke uh, over the one that that, that made us snap was this thing called a kushki now the kushki was this uh, wonderful fabric thing that the pavement would wear there he is, little Isaac as we used to look like yawning away, that's what we want that's what we're dreaming about and so we wear this kushki, this fabric thing on us and the parents was supposed to wear it for a number of days so that the kushki would have the smell of the parent about them and the idea was that eventually once it had your scent on it, you would place it in the crib, put the baby in there, the baby would smell you and be happy and content and would fall asleep well My son's not an idiot. And so he would lie there. He would smell Daddy. And that just made him more angry. You know, because he could smell me, but I wasn't there. And he would get even more, irate until eventually I picked him up, eventually held him on my chest. And he would settle, because finally he had his dad. It was only when he could hear my heart and feel my breath in his head that he would settle down. And I'm afraid that as... Christians very often we are quite content with maybe just the smell of God, as it were. God at a distance. God at arm's length. And we should fight and scream and yell and, and refuse to accept that. Uh, there is a, a need for us to have the presence of God in our life. Not just the things of God. Not just going to church. Not just uh, mixing with Christian people. But God himself in our life. And the power of God transforming our life, walking with God in our life, so that things are different. And in fact, you need to be more like that screaming child who refused to accept anything less. And this is why I think this matters. This is why I think things like Taher matters to us today, because there is a gap between being the child of God, but just almost like, you know, with the smell of God in the room. And being in the presence of God. And there is a difference between the two. Now, The good thing is that it's not up to us to become clean. It's not as if the, the people could be clean. They, they went through different rites, different rituals, because they remembered that they had to have a desire to be clean. They had to want the presence of God in their life. There's nothing more complicated than that, really. In order to be clean, in order to be tahir, you have to want the presence of God in your life. You have to come to him and say, I want you in my life I want to walk with you in my life I want the presence of God in my life and the wonderful thing about that is because we consistently fail uh, there is a a, a wonderful sense by which we get to walk with God through our life and be changed as it were through our life but it's to do with with our intention it's to do with what we want to happen and we can just get by with having God at a distance Um, I, I particularly like uh, it's, just, it's a bit shocking, I'm glad to sit down, but I particularly like the Greek. I know, we might not keep that bit in the recording. But uh, uh, you know, I quite like the, the, the Greek you know, of Second of, uh, Peter chapter 1. Second uh, Peter chapter 1 is, is a wonderful chapter. It's made somewhat more mundane in the English, as you will appreciate. Um, and what happens is, is that the whole chapter is all about how God does everything. Uh, he saves us. It's the power of God that gives us life. It is God, it is God, it is God. The whole way through. And in verse 6 or something, a little bit there, uh, it says, and now you must add to your faith. you look at it and thinking, but Peter told me I can't. <laughs> he told me only in the power of God that I could do any of these things. You know? and the verse previous to that is saying that we are to partake in the divine it's an incredible thing and, and when it actually all comes together in, in the Greek the literal sense of it is actually says that uh, we partake in the divine and so as you dance with God these things are added so, in English, it looks like never add to your faith, self control. So, oh man, you just start with that and the list. Oh, okay, I'll try harder. And you go that day and you try some self control. And even if you do really well, right? maybe, maybe, maybe you manage for a whole day. <laughs> maybe you're better than me, manage for a whole day. Maybe even a week if you're really at it. And then eventually you just don't have that self control. And then we are condemned because we look at that and we think, well, I need to add this to my faith. Whereas the Greek actually says, as you dance with God, these things are added. And the idea is that as you spend time in the presence of God, you are changed. He does the changing. We can't change ourselves. It is God that changes us. And that very big list, which would normally be a list of condemnation, becomes a wonderful and exciting list of what we can become when we want to be in the presence of God. When we dance our way through life with God. I'm not much of a dancer, but I just love that image of dancing with God rather than having a list of things that I should do, recognising that I should be better, and knowing I'm going to fail. And I think that's why it really matters that we have these ideas of being clean because to be clean as far as the people that were concerned yes God had to do it yes God had to be the one that that, that was the the means of of being clean but you had to come you had to be there you had to perform all the right things you had to go and be willing to be clean or else it just wouldn't happen and so I think it still applies to us Uh, God is the one who does it but what a joy it is to dance through life with God and see him change us from the inside. So that's what's going on there. And so David, conscious of these three ways of being clean, repeats it uh, in reverse this time uh, with a threefold cry. Uh, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be tahir. me, and I shall be whiter than snow. <coughs> um, an antiseptic Uh, again he is seeking an absolute cleaning, once again he is seeking to enter into the presence of God, he pleads for this deep cleaning into his broken inward parts, he desires that the stain be removed and that he be made as white as snow, Uh, makes me uh, mindful of uh, Isaiah come now let us reason together says Yahweh, though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they are as red as crimson they shall be like Woe. And so uh, David is coming back and coming back. And the third part, uh, uh, the, as I said, they're in reverse. The blotting is the third one in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. I find this really interesting actually. His, uh, hide your face from my sins. So he's saying, you know, blot out the records, just blot out the records. But then he thinks, but I'm just going to add more to my records. <laughs> so even if God blots them out, I'm going to just do it again. And so he comes up with a plan. He comes up with an idea. And says, so, well, God, maybe if you just don't look. <laughs> maybe if you just kind of look away, it will be okay. If God just looks away and then doesn't record any more things in the book. But he recognises that's not enough. He recognises he doesn't really have a solution. Uh, He recognized that even if God were to forgive him and to restore the relationship, if the covenant was repaired a million times, he'd break it a million and one. David, the habitual sinner. And as much as we ourselves uh, find that being clean is not enough in itself, uh, because we recognize that even as the people of God were able to ruin things, So something bigger than the cleansing, something even more wonderful than just being clean, is required uh, to halt the continual decline into sin. And that's where we get uh, verse 10 coming in. Uh, Creating me a teher heart, a heart that can come before you in your presence, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's the centrepiece of the psalm. This is where he's going. You know, He wants to be clean because he wants the presence of God in his life, but he recognises he's going to blow it. He, he wants to be clean. He wants the stain removed, but he knows he'll just add another one. He, he wants the records expunged, but he knows that he'll just fill that book up again. So he needs something more. Um, and so he comes to this incredible centrepiece of the psalm. Creating me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Um, so it's not just that he needs to be clean he needs to be remade, utterly recrafted, made new so the heart and everything that issues forth from there is remade by God and this is the great hope for humanity uh, restored into something more like the image of God Uh, people who don't just simply desire forgiveness but we desire an end to the need for forgiveness (laughs) Um this is one of the great hopes in the Old Testament it's not just that they can be forgiven they they, they, they have great hope in being forgiven that they want to be in a place where they no longer mess it up that's the great hope I think for for humanity it's not just that we can be forgiven as glorious as that is it's not just that we can be made clean and enter into the presence of God but that we would be a people who no longer mess it all up and this is one of the great Old Testament hopes. It's not unique to David. We see it in the latter part, part of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I think one of the more famous verses, uh, Jeremiah thirty one, thirty-three. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my Torah within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Great Hope. Um, and for each of us in here there's a sense of the now and not yet Uh, ultimately there's an eschatological sense one day we will be perfect Uh, we're not going to be messing up anymore but for us now it is important in terms of the idea of being clean, in terms of the ideas in Psalm 51 is to have the desire to be those people (laughs) we're going to fail and we know that but we should want to be the people who don't. Uh, we should look forward to the day when we are restored utterly and we should constantly seek the presence of God in our life, to be to hear before God, to have that act of our will before him and say, don't take your spirit from me. Today, do a wondrous thing in me and through me. And that's why being clean uh, still matters, and why Psalm 51 really speaks to us uh, even today. Phew, that, that may be the fastest I've ever done that, uh, to be fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, related to that, because it, kind of, it all kind of works together with the things that we're looking at tonight. Related to that is one of the key concepts of the Old Testament. So I'm using clean as as a vehicle to kind of point us to one of the big terms in the Old Testament. Uh, And that is sadika, righteousness. One of the most wonderful words in the English language, less than anything else. Um, It's used 157 times. It's a term that does primarily describe God and everything he does. Now, when we get that, much like every other time when I've said, in the beginning, God... (laughs) It's all about God. It points to God, like I said in previous weeks. Again, here, righteousness, we automatically think, my righteousness, or the righteousness imputed to me. Before we can do that, we need to see that righteousness is fundamentally about God. And it's actually, that's the only way you can understand it, in terms of the Hebrew. Uh, there is a nuance in between the Old Testament and the New Testament when they use the word righteousness is a very different context, it's talking about a very different uh, group of people, and so what is usually convert, conferred in the Hebrew is slightly different from what's conferred in the, in the Greek. Now I'm not saying it's a contradiction, I'm not saying that they uh, are in conflict with each other, but there is a, a slight nuancing because they're done in different contexts. Now, first of all, both will talk about righteousness in the context of the kingdom of God, uh, who God is, uh, what he does, what he says, you know, that God is intrinsically righteous. It's not just that he does righteous things, but that he is himself righteousness. Um, but there is one area that they do diverge. In the New Testament, righteousness can be described as the transformation that takes place in the believer, that altered state free from the guilt of sin. Um, Romans 6, and having been set free from sin they have become slaves of righteousness. As a description of salvation, righteousness then conveys our status and affects how we live. So, just before I get to, to that bit, let me just explain this again. So essentially in the New Testament you've got a group of people who were unsaved Become saved. Uh, You know, moving from, as it were, unrighteousness to righteousness, which is quite different from the Old Testament when you're already speaking to the people of God. They're already saved. And so we get this nuancing. In the New Testament, it is about that change of status from unsaved to saved. But when you come to the Old Testament, they're already saved. So, what does righteousness mean in that context? There's a, a nuance, there's a slight variation uh, between the two. And I want to illustrate it, because if we have like, that New Testament understanding of righteousness, and we go back to the Old Testament, it's really interesting what happens. So, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. Now, question for you. If we are understanding this in that sort of saved, unsaved sort of way of righteousness, like uh, the New Testament, what is the problem here when we read this verse? I'll tell you what, I'll give you a couple of minutes to talk about it with the person next to you, because a lot of you looking kind of unsure. Uh, just talk to the person beside you, have hope that they know what I'm going on about, and uh, see, is there a problem reading this with the idea of saved, unsaved, behind unrighteousness? like we have in the New Testament. So, two minutes, over to you. Okay, so, <coughs> what is the problem? Why would this salvific application of righteousness raise difficulties, really? Suggests so that we can save ourselves rather than God Absolutely right. So, thinking of this as righteousness being this saved unsaved uh, dichotomy, and it will be righteousness. It will be your salvation if we are careful to do all the commandments, uh, all this commandment before Yahweh our God as He has commanded us. Uh, sort of a works based righteousness. <laughs> that's what you guys were saying. Uh, you know, that, that idea of that we, if we just do enough, we'll be righteous. That's a travesty. Uh, that goes against everything in the Bible if you hear here last week you know that is not what the law is all about at all uh, this is not how it should be read and yet if we come with that, that understanding of righteousness which is perfectly legitimate in the New Testament we bring that to the Old Testament we run into problems and as most Christians read the Bible in that direction there's a lot of problems <laughs> um, literally It says, And righteousness will be ours, because we guarded or valued, in order to do all of the commands before the face of Yahweh, our God of gods, which He entrusted us with. That's what it literally says. But importantly, the the, the issue that we have here is that if we take a New Testament nuance, it does appear that in the Old Testament there's a need to earn your salvation. A law of works to gain righteousness imparted if we obey enough commandments. But that's very confusing. I mean, if salvation is actually down to us, well, how can there be any assurance whatsoever? Why would the righteous judgment of God bring with it a sense of rescue and joy? I love the fact that in the Old Testament the idea of judgment is, is for the people of God is a joyous event. Uh, to look forward to the judgment of God I mean most of us don't maybe we're just the way we're brought up most of us probably don't have that kind of gut feeling of yay judgment You know. but if you're one of the people of God what a wonderful and glorious moment it is because at that moment a line has been drawn in time and we step over as the people who no longer fail the judgment of God is the moment when time is wrung on sin and failure and death, and then we are with him. It's a glorious moment for the Christian. Because remember, our books are blotted out. <laughs> the stain on us has been removed, and we are pure. We are able to enter into the presence of God. And so judgment is a glorious and wonderful moment in time, according to the Old Testament. <laughs> and so the, the people they rejoice, they look forward uh, to the idea uh, of judgment they, they rejoice, the idea of God the perfect righteous one being the judge now if the righteousness was down to you, how could you possibly hope to stand before him in a sense of joy <laughs> how could you possibly have a sense of assurance when you stand before the righteous one if it's down to you to earn it you know um um, 50 verse 6 the heavens declare his righteousness God himself is judge that would be a terrifying verse <laughs> rather than a source of joy if righteousness was down to us and so I think we have to see already that there has to be a slight nuancing, a changing of what righteousness is referring to in the Hebrew term uh, tzaddikah so uh, the key to it all is the fact that their righteousness is about God. And once we forget that and start thinking about our righteousness, it can get us into a bit of a funk, But it is primarily about God, it is intrinsic into the very nature of who He is. Uh, one of the titles of God is actually El Sadiq, uh, the righteous one. Yahweh is a sadiq, says the psalmist in Psalm 129, see in Ezra 9, uh, Lamentations 1 and 8. As El-Tzaddik, sadiq, is none to compare with him. In Isaiah 45, verse 21. Consequently, every deed he commits is, by definition, righteous. He cannot act in any other way. So told in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the righteous judge. He is the only one that can decide what is righteous and what is not. As part of him, this righteousness is assured to exist forever and ever. Everything he says is a righteous testimony. It is this righteousness that is the foundations of his throne. Now, it's not just that he acts with righteousness. It's not an attribute he's cultivated. It is something that he intrinsically Is This is the crucial element in grasping the concept of righteousness in the Old Testament. When righteousness in the Old Testament is measured against the plumb line of God himself, well then to be righteous is not really just to follow enough rules, obey some commands. To be righteous in the Old Testament is the extent to which you are like God. How well... Do we reflect him in how we live? His righteousness is a revelation allowing us to see his perfection and to, from there, live righteously. Um, That's why Isaiah is compelled to look at the filthy rags of what he had thought was his own righteousness uh, regularly, but not least in in, uh, Isaiah 64 verse 6. God's righteousness is that great revelation. We could not know what righteousness was unless he had shown it to us. And the laws that we do have, the, the Torah at large, uh, is the means of righteousness in Deuteronomy 6:25. Not because we have enough deeds that can gain our salvation, but because as we read who he is, remember the Torah, God made flesh, when we read who he is and see who he is, we can see who we're supposed to be like um, uh, so again thinking of it that way righteousness will be ours we can be more like him if we value guard uh, all of the commands before the face of God of God, which he entrusted with us uh, so first of all <clears throat> is there is a value it are not be the guarding uh, valuing uh, shomar uh, you know, do we value the revelation that we have in our hands do we see the significance of who is presented in that text? Do we guard the text with like the greatest treasure in order to act upon the words contained within it? That's what that verse is all about. It's not about doing enough things to be righteous. It's about reading this text and recognising, I can see God in here. I want to be more like him. It's a very different thing. Because remember, this verse is spoken to people who he has already redeemed. They are already the people of God. They have already been described as the great treasure of God. These are the people of God. They are not asking, how might I be saved? They are asking, I am one of the people of God. How do I live like it? How do I live with righteousness? How do I live with, with God written through my life? As well, read the Torah. Read this book that reveals who he is. See him for who he is. And go on from there. The whole Bible says, this is God. This is the righteous one. Righteousness is doing what he would do. and therein lies the problem. So, how can we possibly be righteous? <laughs> it becomes the question. I mean, there's God, there's, there's the righteous one, the perfect one, and then there's us. And no matter how hard we try, there's no way we're going to measure up. And again, we can be lulled into a sort of sense of, of, of uh, despair and condemnation. Uh, and again, I, I think of my children, which, which helps me come up with many illustrations. I'll apologise to them when they're grown up. Um, but at the same time, I remember, again, uh, my, my two uh, older sons, we, at home we used to have this, this measuring giraffe, basically a large wooden giraffe-shaped thing with uh, you know, centimetres and metres all the way up. And this was a great big, enormous thing. It was taller than I, uh, by some degree. And when I looked at that giraffe, I knew full well, in all likelihood to be fair, that my kids were never going to be the height of a giraffe. But they didn't care. Hmm. What they cared about as they came running in to measure themselves was, were they taller than they were yesterday? They weren't trying to be as tall as a giraffe. They were trying to be taller than they were the previous time that they measured up. And that actually is the nub of it. Will we ever be righteous enough? Will we ever be so much like God that we could reach the top? No. But that's not the point. The point is, am I more righteous today than I was yesterday? Like David could be described as more righteous than Saul. There's a comparison to say, which one of them acted more in the way that God would act? And then again, it's not this condemnation, it's an inspiration, because they're thinking, okay, this is where I am just now, but ho, 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 in the hands of a mighty God, where can I be tomorrow? As I dance with him through my life, where will we begin to measure up? Will there be a point when people will see me in the street and say, I know who you serve. It's an inspiration and righteousness is this lifelong pursuit until eventually we awake in righteousness and see him face to face. That's the idea for the people who are saved, for the people of God in the Old Testament. That's what righteousness is all about. So it's not saved unsaved, which is legitimate in, in the New Testament. But as the people of God, how like God will you be today? Which is a challenge. Could be too daunting unless we see it as an inspiration of what we could be. A sense of excitement about that. Um, that sense of what we could be in the hands of God. And so we are called upon then, um, if this is something we're serious about, we are called upon throughout the Old Testament and into the New to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, it's, not, it's not saying hunger and thirst for salvation, it's hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, it goes into the New Testament, Matthew 5, um, Verse 6, uh, I will have it there. And, and I think it's a really um, well-chosen description. Um, when we hunger and we thirst and we get something, uh, you know, if I'm hungry and I eat, I'm satiated, and then after we while I'm hungry again. With me, a ridiculously short amount of time. Uh, But, you know, that's the thing about hunger and thirst. It's something you have to perpetually feed. And so when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's not just kind of a case of, well, you know, I remember, you know, X number of years ago that I got saved and I met God and that's me. And no, 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 that's the start that's you walking into the restaurant you haven't even picked up the menu yet let alone actually filled and so it's about this idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness this constant pursuit in our life and every single time that we really grasp hold of God it's not enough <laughs> keep going and so that we are changed throughout our life and that's why hunger and thirst is very often used to describe our pursuit of righteousness it's not that, that sort of you know, New Testament of a one-off deal, changing our status. It's about changing every single day to be more like him and to be fair uh, in the New Testament we have authors like John who uh, are primarily Hebrew thinkers in the writing his Greek's fairly terrible because he's thinking in Hebrew and writing in Greek not like Luke who thinks in Greek writes in Greek and just has perfect Greek because he is Greek <laughs> John he, he's got a little bit more going on and so um, John both First John 2 and chapter 3 verse 7 says that only the righteous will want to live righteously. And so he's trying to combine the two ideas, if you see what I mean, the New Testament righteousness and Old Testament righteousness and put them together. And the idea is that only those who've been saved, who've received, as it were, the robes from God, the lambs robes that are righteous people will actually want to run after God and pursue God, hunger and thirsting after God and live in a way that reflects the righteous one electron <laughs> you know and he puts the two ideas together because they're not a contradiction they, they, they're part of a, of a much bigger picture and the people who've received the robes of righteousness we should live like it yeah, so that's, that's the idea and so uh, for me uh, I certainly am looking forward to a time when I'm raised from the dead I see God face to face and I can say as for me I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. Does that make sense? Um, a lot of the time, I get really enthusiastically excited about God. <laughs> and, and, and this is kind of some of the reason why, when I see terms like this, um, you know, I, I do think that there's a, a tendency to imagine, you know, we get saved and we just get, can we get left on a shelf until eventually we go to heaven. <laughs> and that's not what we have—that wonderful and glorious opportunity to become more like God over our lifetime. I, I find that just incredible, uh, really quite exciting. Uh, but uh, I thought what I would do from there, so we had clean leading us to righteousness. That can make sense. That's that right yeah, that can make sense. Uh, and then from there to think to very, very briefly about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. So, oh, bear with me. <laughs> I'm only going to use one term, so it's a paltry introduction. It's a, an introduction you should almost apologise for, uh, as it were, uh, as we go to Olah, the burnt offering. Now, to be fair, there are many, many, many terms for sacrifice uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Zabach, uh, animal sacrifice. Uh, isha, burnt offering. Chak. Uh, uh, festival sacrifice, tamu, the daily sacrifice, mincha, tithing sacrifice, olah, the burnt sacrifice that was done daily. Uh, There are so many terms even beyond that. Uh, We have korban um, usually used in conjunction with sacrifices, the offering set aside in the service of God. Uh, There's an entire system that describes the multifaceted nature of the effect of sin and uh, it's great Uh, sometimes I read books on doctrine and systematic theology and I read these books and I see lots of people arguing over what did Christ achieve on the cross and I want to just scream please read Leviticus please any of you please just read it's there it's right there Uh, yes victory over Satan promise in Genesis also but you know essentially what he achieved on the cross is seen in a multifaceted sacrificial system and again we often just think well you know he saves me and, well, yes but there's, there's lots of elements to that and, and actually like, sin doesn't just affect you it, yes there's you and God but there's also the community that you're a part of in God and how it affects you and other people I mean, sin gets in everywhere and Jesus Christ deals with all of it and we get a real appreciation as much as I think that we can comprehend uh, through the sacrificial system in uh, the Old Testament but the olah was one of the five main sacrifices. It's used uh, very much in Leviticus 1, 7, uh, Described as uh, the burnt offering, um, where the whole offering is burned up. The green cereal offering, which is not the animal one. Uh, peace fellowship offering, uh, the only sacrifice that the offer could actually uh, eat. There's the the sin purification offerings so that did require blood. Uh, guilt reparation offering and. Uh, it it gets used in quite a wide variety of ways of all the offerings uh, Allah has been chosen this evening um, because Noah offers it um, following his salvation from the flood Abraham on Mount Moriah offers Olah as a substitute for his son it's required as part of the consecration of the priests, it's presented as the most important because it's the first in Leviticus 1-7 uh, to seven. it is a sacrifice of atonement where death brings forgiveness of sin it can be used for thanksgiving and it can be used in the making of a vow it is distinctive as the burnt uh, meat that was offered up wholly to God Um, nearly always uh, the idea of it is that it is blemish free uh, this male uh, animal that is a substitutionary uh, nature and it very much points to Christ and what he does the lamb of the world when we talk about the lamb of the world it is the ola that is really being described saving someone else from death uh, is part of it Um, usually saving someone from death through an unwarranted death another death as it were the victim ensures forgiveness. Um, when we see, uh, very often, it's the idea of you can be included as a priest because of the blood of someone else. Um, anyone who wants forgiveness is required to offer uh, this olah. But I think the forgiveness. That aspect is very interesting. Um, so what you would do, if you wanted to have forgiveness from God, uh, you would take a lamb, your very best lamb, the blemish-free lamb, you know, which represented quite a cost to you. And so you would take it with you to the temple, the priest would then tie it down to the altar, and then you had to take the knife and kill it. Now, how many of you have owned a pet? And that took an ominous turn, did not it? <laughs> just checking this with me here. At least he how many have owned, have owned a pet? Yeah, and, and 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 you know when the pet passes, it's just quite a traumatic event. Um, uh, I actually remember my dad. He he brought home a lamb uh, once. He thought it'd be great. Uh, he thought it'd be a labour-saving device. Uh, he put it in my grandmother's garden to eat all the grass, and it did eat all the grass. It's just that it kind of recycled it into something much harder to get rid of, uh, all over the lawn. Um, I'll explain that later. I didn't quite get that one. Uh, but but then the this lamb, and what was interesting is that we called it chops <laughs> because we knew what was going to happen to the lamb. Uh, now uh, again, another ominous turn. How many of you have killed an animal? Not as bad as I thought. Okay, I think you're just not confessing to that. Uh, You know, but I've had opportunity uh, when I was growing up to 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 um, uh, you know hunt animals and kill animals and and, and cook animals that you've hunted. uh, My dad would take me out to to do this sort of thing. It provided uh, you know food and and various things. Uh, Very often it was his responsibility as part of his job to go out and and kill uh, pests like rabbits and things. And you know sometimes uh, later on when I was a bailiff, I'd have to help uh, killing deer. And it is actually quite a thing, to be honest, Uh, especially when the animal knows it's going to die, like a lamb that you're taking to the slaughter. Uh, There is something about uh, seeing the life go out in its eyes, Uh, the smell of blood, the cries in the air, uh, that should affect you. It was one of the reasons that the sacrificial system was actually quite effective until there was a rather rich middle class who could just buy the animal and it didn't really matter. When it was your animal and you had to be there and you had to cut its throat and you had to smell its blood, watch the life go out in its eyes, it had an effect. You did not want to be standing there again the next day. Do it again. It would change how you acted. Now as Christians, you know, we don't sacrifice lambs anymore. And sadly, the effect on our behaviour has been removed as well. But I actually genuinely believe that if each of us could take a a field trip through time, if each of us could actually stand at the foot of the cross and see the life go out in his eyes, if we could hear the cries and smell the blood and actually see it, we would be different. We would recognise it was us, it was our sin that nailed him to that cross. I don't want to do this anymore. We would be different when we grasp what was actually taking place in the sacrificial system, when we understand the cost of even giving up a sheep, and then we recognize in natural fact Jesus, the Lamb of the world, not just some sort of cute title. It is, it is a visceral, it is violent, it is dreadful. And if we were actually there, and not separated through time, not uh, safe and secure that we're so distant away, our behaviour, I think, would be different if we really grasped what it cost for us to be clean, for us to have access to righteousness. And that's why it's important that this is brought in as well, because it's not just about what we do, it's not just about what we want, it's fundamentally about who God is and what he has done for us. And that not only can we be different, we should want to be different. And so that's the primary reason I brought this one in as well. Which gives me one last word to do. <laughs> um, I, I thought, I would probably have about 15 minutes left by now, I could probably fit in one more <laughs> as it were. And I wanted to bring in the word necham because I, I, I believe there's a great misunderstanding uh, over this term. Um, And an awful lot of the words I've been using have ultimately really been about us and how we gain access to God. I wanted a word that was really uh, undeniably a word which really helps us understand something about the very nature of God himself, Uh, particularly when it comes to our lack of cleanliness and our lack of righteousness. So, Naham is the word I'm going to go for. And I suppose that's probably translated best as the great sigh. Like a full lung. <sighs> Drawn out. Really, it's heavy. It's, it's a deep sigh. Uh, and um, one of the problems that we have is that in our text, very often it's translated as repent. That gets us into a whole lot of difficulty. There is a Hebrew word for repent, uh, shob. Uh, Shub is a perfectly good word (laughs) for repent uh, because uh, uh, Shub means to turn around, uh, what we normally mean by repent. Very common term. Uh, Shub is used 1058 times in the Old Testament, very common. It sometimes describes a physical return. um, So the dove. That no releases, it shoves eventually and comes back to the arc. It turns around and comes back. Uh, sometimes it's um, the recall of information. So, that, you know, you store a piece of information somewhere and then you bring it back, as it were, when needed. Uh, as in Laminate, Lamentations. 3:21. It has a spiritual connotation, obviously. Shubh, uh, repentance of the wicked um, who, in turning to God, find life instead of the death that they were working towards. That's true. That's repent, as we would normally understand it or, or know it. So it's a bit of a problem when we translate Naham as repent, because it's a perfectly good word for that. Necham means something different. It means, as I said, to sigh, Um, and it usually uh, is understood as as regret. So it occurs 108 times. It's usually that sense of incredibly deep regret. Um, It's described sometimes as comforting or consoling. Um, It's where we get um, uh, Noah from. Uh, uh, Noah is, is, is this idea of, of the, consoling, uh, the consoling one. Uh, the comfort of Isaac by Rebecca following the death of his mother is said to be Nacham. Um, it's very often compassion uh, or a sense of grief. It has those kind of connotations. So can we appreciate that when we translate it as repent, it can lead us to some difficulty because that's not really uh, what is going on. So before I get to God, can God repent? which is a genuine question that people will ask. Uh, let us start off by asking, did Job repent? I uh, don't think... Yep, there we go. Uh, Job 42, maybe did this text out, uh, verse 3 326. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now and I will speak, I will question you and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself. And Naham usually translates as Repent in the dust and the ashes. And how we translate Naham really does alter the intent Of Job 42, verse six. Now, this is obviously uh, nearer the end of the book. Uh, We've kind of gone through the book. We've seen uh, Job repeatedly say that he is innocent, and then he comes and uh, and there's this moment where he really sees God, and things change. Something changes uh, at this point, and this is his response. It's quite a pivot. Uh, the momentum of the previous passage um, after he's met with God and there's a beautiful poetic nature now it's Hebrew, so bear in mind that it's quite broad actually what's going on and it actually has three meanings and it's intended to imply all three, not that you get to choose one of them we um, have got on the next slide, uh, so we have these different ways of reading that. that in I'm trying to get it into English from the Hebrew therefore I recant and relent being dust and ashes, he's talking about himself there's nothing but dust and ash so he, he recants and relents uh, or I recant and change my mind concerning dust and ashes the, 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 the uh, punishments the, the, the things that have been done to him uh, as it were uh, therefore I despise myself and I concede here in the dust and the ashes and uh, the Hebrew conveys all three and intends to convey all three and usually in English we just choose one because that's how our language works. <coughs> um, and of course this to the rebuttal of God to the questions that Job had, uh, had raised, but it's really important to the narrative of the whole book here that we understand what's going on. So that's, what it, that's the three ways it can be, but we normally translate it as, I repent in the dust and the ashes. Now, why would it be a problem for Job to repent? in terms of the coherence of the whole book. Well, talks about him being righteous. Thank you. The whole point is, Job hasn't got anything to repent of. That's, that's the point of the book. <laughs> the point of the book isn't that he is guilty and punished, like all of his friends imagine. The point is, is that he's an innocent man, and this is the effect of living in a fallen world. And it's not about the fact that if you sin, then you get punished, but that sin affects... Everyone, uh, at a completely unfair way, and some people are affected more than others. It's one of the consequences of sin that it's unfair. That's the point of job. If by this point he goes, "Mm, I repent, the whole purpose of the book kind of collapses because that's not what's supposed to go on. Does does that make sense? Yes. Well, I read this verse, I was just thinking the the verse before it said, I despise myself. Means that he's actually revived his own status as a sinner rather than regret of the sin he has committed. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as, as I go through um, uh, the, the, the idea of, of really, I mean, he's seeing himself in relation to God. I, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, there is, there is this incredible gap between God and Job. It's not like he's speaking to him as an equal. Uh, he recognizes and Job has said some things that he shouldn't have said uh, you know, he's articulated as it were he's challenged God to say you know, how dare you do these sorts of things and so his natural response is to recant to relent to recognize who he is before God but to repent is to go too far um, the great sin that, he, that all of his friends say that he is guilty of is not there isn't there um, that, as I said, that's, that's the whole purpose of the book of Job. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he recognizes who he is before God. He relents in, in, in the, the fervour of what he is saying, um, but he doesn't repent. It's really important that he doesn't repent. The sin of Job leading to deserved suffering is the very thing that the book rejects wholesale. And it's important that he doesn't repent. He acknowledges his complaints were foolish. Uh, he recounts his words he will concede his errors but he doesn't repent uh, it's important to kind of it out because otherwise it undermines the entire purpose of the book and fortunately for us it doesn't say repent it doesn't say shub it says Raham. and so the idea is that he has got himself to a place where there is this great sigh he can regret some of the things that he has said, but that's not the same as repenting. It's not the same as saying, yes, there is, oh, that's the giant sin that should have been repenting. All of my friends are correct. <laughs> and uh, you get what you deserve. You know, that's not what's going on. And this is one, one example of where, where Job, um, unfortunately, is said to repent when he most certainly does not. The problem gets much bigger when we then ask, Does God repent? Does God turn, Um, as it were? And and understanding who God is, uh, you know, very often affects us. Uh, There are different ways of of viewing God. Uh, Some people believe that God is outside of time and therefore knows everything. Um, But he's not really involved down here. He doesn't feel anything, doesn't actually get actively involved in mankind in any real sense. Some Christians believe that God is trapped inside time and so therefore he doesn't really know what's going to happen next and so sometimes has to change his mind and repent of the things he was going to do. Um, to be unfair to both categories, um, I don't believe in either. I believe in the Trinity whereby God the Father is outside of time, God the Son goes sort of in between the two and God the Holy Spirit lives on earth. you get the best of both worlds but... Uh, what do I know? I just do Old Testament. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, this is actually quite important. It's really important... Uh, sorry. Does God repent? Because it is a term that is used with God uh, in some word of translations. Uh, often, um, you know, Genesis 6, 6 example, Exodus 32, they're quite famous examples. Uh, but the, 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 the key thing um, is that it usually follows the compassion-following wrath, as it were. It's not that God changes his mind. I think this is a key aspect to it because when we read that God repents we could imagine that God had been doing something thought better of it and changed his mind and it gives you a certain picture of God in your head if he can do that if he acts like that as opposed to a God who knows everything and manages to do everything right the first time (laughs) and so um let me take Judges 2, verse 18. Whenever Yahweh based up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was nacham by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And it's not that God says, well, okay, I'm going to let you, you suffer. Oh, no, now I've changed my mind. It's that, I'm going to let you suffer. A deep sigh. And when it had run its course and the people had turned back to God, then they could continue. It wasn't that God changes his mind and goes off in a different direction. It's like God with a great regret and great painful sigh allows these things to happen to see his people brought back. Which is why Naham is a very different kind of God than the God who goes, Oh, okay, I'll, I'll change <laughs> you know but the God who actually has this long-drawn-out sigh of regret that we have made this necessary. (laughs) That makes a lot more sense, uh, actually. Um, it's also used to describe the appointed time uh, of rejection. So King Saul, I, 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 love, I love King Saul. Um, he, he's not the worst king ever, to, to, be, to be honest. he gets a lot worse than Saul. Um, um, one thing that I like about Saul is that everything's very simple with Saul. I mean, he strikes everyone as being quite simple. He doesn't have a great big palace, doesn't have a harem, he doesn't have a giant army or any sorts of things. There's all things he does well. The problem is, um, well himself the people say to God God we want want a king we're going to reject you we're going to have a king and we no he has to go out and fight our battles first we want a king just like all the other nations awful moment in in the people of God (laughs) to be downgraded to the level of all the other nations but God says okay your criteria here he is the person you wanted the, the tall good looking charismatic fighting king here he is and it's a bad idea and then the next time round God provides someone who's a bit more as he would have it not someone who's perfect, not someone who gets it right but someone who chases after the heart of God now the phrase "David is a man after the heart of God is not to say that he has a perfect replica of God's heart but much like what we've been saying tonight he was a man who was consistently seeking after the heart of God and every time he got it wrong he would repent and come back and chase God uh, that's the, the, the background. But King Saul then is chosen based on the criteria of the people. And so he is chosen in judgment. It is entirely possible for God to give us what we want in judgment. And God says, you do not want to do this. You do not want this. You do not want it. I warned you. Uh, and being given things in judgment when we don't listen to God. And Saul's a good example. And so he says, I the Ham that I have made Saul king. Now if we, if we have that as repent... God goes, ah, hmm, that's a bad idea. I'm going to change my mind. (laughs) I'm I'm going to go a different direction. As opposed to, you know, it is with regret that I have made Saul king. That sense, you know, that you have made it necessary. This is who you chose. And it breaks my heart that this is who you have as a king. Uh, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments and Samuel was angry and he cried to Yahweh all night and I think this is quite important uh, to me because it does really affect the very nature of God himself as a God who is who gets it wrong changes his mind Uh, as opposed to a God who very often gives us the things that we need or the things that we demand but with great regret in his heart that this is what we're like And I thought, you know, considering tonight when we're thinking of being clean and getting into the presence of God uh, and righteousness being more like God uh, and the will laugh what it costs for us to have all of that. Now we should be mindful that the alternative as the people of God instead of chasing after him is for God to have that heartbroken sigh when we decide to go our own way. And so that's how we all kind of join up tonight. So it exhorts you to be clean, to not be content with the smell of God, but God Himself. To have that desire to be more like God every day. And the days when you come in below par, below the bar that you set, even for yourself, you think, right, tomorrow <laughs> it's going to be the day when we're going to get up and we're going to be more like Him." Because we should be conscious of what it costs for us to even have those thoughts in our head, and to be like that rather than the people that make God sigh. Thank you for coming out and thanks for listening to the, the five classes of Hebrew words that I think Christians should know. Thank you.